Hello and a very warm welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Koskila and I'm delighted to be bringing you another fantastic episode with my co-host and the editor of Gold, Helena Beer. How are you doing today, Helena? I'm really well, thank you. We've survived London's heatwave so far, so that's a relief. Um, but in less good news, we've reached the end of this season of the podcast. I know we have. This is the 23rd and final episode of season two, and we're going to be taking a few weeks off over the summer before coming back in September with what's set to be an even bigger and better season three. But before we get there, there's lots more on offer. There is. And first, should we should we have a reminisce? What's been your favourite part of season two? Excellent question. Well, for me, it's a really tricky one, actually. So we've interviewed such a broad range of guests across the industry that's covered such a plethora of topics such as biotech, the metaverse, International Women's Day, etc, etc. But if I had to choose just one, I thoroughly enjoy digging into the topic of innovation with Magnus Bjorsner, CEO of AstraZeneca's BioVenture Hub, where we chatted about the impact of the pandemic, plus collaboration and creativity within the industry. Helena, what was yours? Well, I have to agree, we've had some brilliant discussions about digital transformation, TikTok, blockchain, cell and gene therapy, so many great topics and fabulous guests. Um, Roche's Davidek Heron and AstraZeneca's Louisa Luciani-Silverman really stood out for me. But I have to say, my favourite interview of this season is actually the one we have coming up today. Ending on a high then. Indeed we are. So in today's episode, I speak to Mike Watson, who is the CEO of Mevox. It's a company committed to bringing vaccine technology into the 21st century. Mike also worked for Moderna during its initial COVID-19 vaccine development, so we had plenty to talk about, and it's such an interesting discussion about vaccines past, present and future. Yes, so do stick around for that. But first up, let's see what's been going on in the news. So Helena, to kick us off, what news might we have missed? So this week's interview is about vaccines, as we mentioned, and staying on that topic, GSK recently held its annual Palio meeting, which brought together 65 experts across immunology, vaccinology and epidemiology with the aim of addressing the growing threat to human health from infectious disease and its links to nature loss and climate change as well. This year's theme, Vaccines for a Sustainable Planet, was central to the discussions on topics such as vaccines mitigating the effects of environmental change, prioritising pathogens for AMR vaccine development, the role of vaccines in protecting microbial diversity, and how to ensure equitable access to vaccines in the future, amongst other things. The threat of infectious disease is growing as data show environmental changes are exacerbating respiratory health issues, increasing the spread of diseases such as malaria and fostering antimicrobial resistance. So this latest discussion about vaccines is more important than ever and it'll be great to see what the outcome of these expert discussions will be. Now, transparency is another thing we've covered on the podcast recently, and this week the focus turns to transparency in NHS data that's used in all kinds of research within the pharma industry. That's right. The ABPI has launched a new set of principles that members, of which there are over 120, will follow when using NHS data for research purposes. Developed in consultation with the NHS, tested through a public consultation and with input from lots of stakeholders, including medical research charities and patient groups, this commitment will increase transparency and build public trust in the biopharmaceutical industry's use of health data for research purposes. 
Richard Torbett, chief executive of the ABPI, commented, using health and genomic data can accelerate the understanding of disease, improve the efficiency of healthcare services, and support the development of new medicines. UK health data has exceptional potential to advance these goals as the NHS routinely collects and stores data on health services, treatments, and outcomes across the country. The announcement has gained widespread support with Kate Cheema, Director of Health Insights at the British Heart Foundation, highlighting that the charity is especially pleased to see the clear commitment to actively promote patient and public involvement and engagement in health data projects. Now, a story that grabbed my attention recently is a particularly topical one. After the recent Roe versus Wade ruling in the US, the Perigo company, HRA Pharma, has requested that the FDA make its birth control pill available over the counter. This would mean that the HRA's mini pill or non-estrogen pill would undergo a POM to P switch, becoming an easily accessible over-the-counter medication. If the application is approved, this would be the first ever over-the-counter birth control pill in the US. And this announcement came shortly after the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade that led to nationwide debates and protests around reproductive rights. Frederic Welgren, Chief Strategic Operations and Innovation Officer at HRA Pharma, commented that moving a safe and effective prescription birth control pill to OTC will help even more women and people access contraception without facing unnecessary barriers. Now, moving on to this week's interview, as I mentioned, I spoke to Mike Watson, CEO of Mevox, about his experience in the world of vaccines. We talk about how and why he made the move to vaccines, his experiences during COVID with the Moderna vaccine, and how he sees the future vaccine landscape shaping up. Mike also discusses Mevox MMR venture, discussing the aims and objectives, its benefits and trajectory, as well as MMR vaccines more broadly. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Mike, it's lovely to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining and um, for coming on the podcast to talk all things vaccine. It's great to be here. Thanks, Helena. No worries at all. So just to start off, it'd be great if you could kind of give us an overview of your career so far. So I know you started out as a physician and then transitioned into pharma. Was that always your career goal to move into pharma? So yeah, I'm, I, yes, I'm a UK physician. Um, no, my goal was not always to move into pharma. I spent five years working in hospital uh, across a range of things, including infectious diseases. Um, and after five years, um, I decided actually I wanted to move more into the sort of research development side of things. So I started looking around, spent then a couple of years with Bristol-Myers Squibb, a couple of years with Takeda. Um, but I'd always had my eye on the biotech sector, which back in those days was was young. Yeah. And vaccines had always struck me as the best way to combine my infectious diseases interest yeah. with biotech, with immunology, without actually leaping into what were very small, risky companies in those days. Um, so I was fortunate enough to uh, to join um, Pasteur Maria Sirame Vaccin, as they were called in those days, as medical director in '97. Amazing. That sounds great. And why vaccines? I know you say you had that interest in in infectious diseases, but where did your kind of interest in vaccines and infectious diseases originate? I think three angles, really. First, for my elective at med school, I spent three months in Sierra Leone working in a hospital in the middle of nowhere. And there you see the real impact of infectious Mm -hmm. diseases and the benefit of vaccines. Um, the second was was working on on infectious diseases unit in Birmingham, mm-hmm. um, where we saw a lot of tropical diseases coming in. 
And the third was always been fascinated by immunology and virology. And back in the day, um, those were very much um, areas that that a lot of progress needed to be made in. Really. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I feel like with with vaccines, it's something where there's such a huge um, kind of difference that can be made. It's um, not one of those kind of areas of medicine where you're just seeing tiny um, little kind of um, uh, bits of progress. You can see a really wide ranging benefit that impacts so many people. Um, so yeah, I can definitely definitely understand uh, the the appeal. Um, so can you tell me a bit about your experiences during COVID? I know that you're involved in the Moderna vaccine and that kind of thing. So can you just kind of explain what your role was and how you kind of used that vaccine experience in that kind of um, time of crisis? Yeah, I, in fact, I joined Moderna beginning of 2016 and I built the vaccines group there. We built the portfolio. And one of the things that struck me as I joined Moderna, as I looked carefully at the RNA platform, was just how well adapted it is to epidemic, pandemic yeah. Um, yeah. response. It's just so fast. Um, and so um, we'd always been talking to CEPI. We'd always been talking to BADA, which is the um, biopreparedness group in the US. And we'd formed partnerships with the NIH. And actually, we'd been working on very similar viruses to, to COVID. So it's what I call planned serendipity. When it came, we were kind of ready um, in a sort of um, oblique way. Um, though, interestingly, um, I had been commuting between France and the US for, for almost four years and had just at the end of 2019 had just come back to France. Uh, and so um, Stéphane Bonsell rang me up and said, uh, you know, would you give us a hand? So, um, you know, the team at Moderna did a, have done a fantastic job and I contributed where I could mm -hmm. um, to their work. Um, and, and as you've seen, it moved incredibly quickly Absolutely. from, um, you know, a sequence to the first vaccine within days yeah. and then through the clinic. Brilliant. Um, and did you learn anything during that time that you've kind of utilised in other areas since you left Moderna um, in that capacity? Yes, I think vaccines, we have probably believed in many ways our dogmas and not challenged our dogmas that vaccines take a very long time to develop. Yeah. Um, and this has shown that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we've learned very new ways of doing things. What I think is really important is that we don't forget those and we don't allow ourselves mm -hmm. to slip back into the way we used to do things before where it would take you know, 20 years to develop a vaccine, mm. that, that's that's not good enough and we can do better. Yeah. How much do you think there's a bit of a battle with the kind of regulatory approvals? So obviously, you proved that you could get the vaccine developed in a very short period of time. And then with COVID, all eyes were on the COVID vaccines. And so things like the FDA and um, MRHA got those through quite quickly. Do you think that might be a bit of a hurdle for other vaccines in future? I think the challenge with vaccines is that you've got the science and the development, you've got the regulatory piece, but you've also got a public health piece. Mm. And um, regulators are conscious of that, and that once you introduce a vaccine, mm. um, you have taken a step that in many ways could be irreversible. So mm. you've, you've done something to a population that you can't undo. Yeah. So you do have to be very cautious. 
Um, so it's finding that right balance. Mm. Um, and it would be great if we could roll the film forward 20, 30, 40 years. You can't. Mm. And at a certain point, you have to say it's safe enough, it's good enough. Mm. We're going to have to just go and we're going to just learn things as we go along. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so... Um, you're currently CEO of um, Mevox. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Um, so currently CEO of Mevox and you're working on an MMR vaccine. So um, it'd be great if we could kind of chat about the origins of the company and your kind of um, aims and ambitions. So um, yeah, can we start with how, why and where um, Mevox originated? Yeah, yeah. So What's happened with vaccines is it's gone from a very empirical science more recently to being um, much more molecular. We understand viruses much better. Yeah. We can get down to an atomic level to understand how they attach to cells, how they do what they do. And we can then design vaccines in a way we couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I was having a conversation about five years ago um, with someone called Guillaume Stewart-Jones, who's, who's my co-founder. And Guillaume's a very smart guy. Um, did some fantastic work in Oxford on HIV, then went to the US as working at the National Institute of Health and was working on an RSV vaccine, which is actually the vaccine that GSK and um, Pfizer have taken into phase three, yeah. which applies this molecular design. Mm -hmm. And we were talking and I said, it'd be really interesting to apply that approach to measles, mumps and rubella. Mm -hmm. um, because this is the techie bit because they have the same what's called a class one viral fusion protein they're actually the same superfamily. so uh, we had the conversation didn't think any more of it and then two years later um guillaume and i were talking said oh um i did what we discussed it works really well and we said okay that sounds like a company um <laughs> so that's how the company started right. so very much it really was very much born by the two of us has become a company um we um, found ourselves a fantastic initial investor in the shape of Morningside in the US. Um, and we've moved very rapidly through um, some non-human primate studies in partnership with the National Institute of Health in the US, the Center for Disease Control, Johns Hopkins. So we've got a really nice partnership together. Mm. Um, and it's moved, moved forward very quickly. So we're now looking to get into the clinic. Brilliant. That's excellent. So um, I know this is the first MMR vaccine since the 70s, I think, that's been been developed or one of them. Um, so why did you think it was such an important thing to focus on? And I think you've described um, Evox's purpose, um, I think it was on, on your LinkedIn, um, as 21st century vaccine innovation. So um, what do you kind of specifically mean by that? And where did the drive to, to produce an MMR vaccine really come from? So a lot of the vaccines we use today are quite old. That's not necessarily bad, but we can do a lot better. You know, yeah. diphtheria, 1940s, tetanus, 1940s, whooping cough, 1940s, mm -hmm. polio, 1950s, um, MMR, 1960s and 70s. Yeah. So here we are 50 years later. And what we see 50 years later are a number of things. Um, and the most critical thing is that mumps hasn't gone away. And the mumps component of MMR um, loses its efficacy over time. Right. And we're seeing outbreaks uh, in all countries that use MMR in young adults and adolescents. Mm -hmm. So we need to do better. Yeah. Um, and doing better means applying this molecular engineering approach that, that we talked about. So this is all being led by mumps. Right. Um, and 
we think the mumps outbreaks, the epidemiology suggests the mumps outbreaks are only going to get worse. So we've got a vaccine which is um, about 40-fold more immunogenic in non-human primates than it is in in humans. Um, Why non-human primates? Interestingly, non-human primates actually get vaccinated with MMR to protect them against their handlers. So um, that's very indicative of what we're going to see in humans. It also actually at the end of this, as well as experimenting on non-human primates, who, by the way, you know, go back into the colony, we hope to have a vaccine to protect non-human primates as well as humans. Um, anyway, so Amazing. by the way, uh, so um, so by improving the mumps bit, which is now a recombinant protein, the only way we can improve the whole MMR is to have recombinant versions of measles and rubella. Right. So we've developed those as well to go with it. That will bring other benefits. Um, much easier to make than live viral uh, vaccines, much more thermostable, much easier to produce at scale, therefore lower cost of goods. And something else with mumps is that the low income countries and many of the lower middle income countries don't have mumps vaccines at all because um, this vaccine is not scalable, cost effectively scalable. So we'd hope also to allow mumps vaccines to be then available for the whole world. Amazing. So it's yeah, there are so many benefits then. It's uh, yeah, a bit of a no-brainer. <laughs> That's what we think. <laughs> That's what we, and the 21st century is really applying that molecular engineering. Um, yeah. So really updating vaccines. I think it's fair every 50 or 60 years maybe to, to move them up. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so obviously we're used to hearing about mRNA technology with, with everything that's happened throughout COVID. Um, and... I guess my question is, for those who don't know, you mentioned that there's a difference between this type of vaccine and the live viral vaccines, and also, I'm assuming, mRNA. Um, so um, how does this one fit into the wider kind of vaccine landscape? Yeah. Um, vaccines are, are, there are lots of ways of doing vaccines. The 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 old-fashioned way, if you like, involves having to identify the pathogen, grow the pathogen, and then decide whether you're going to breed it until it's a tame pathogen that protects without hurting, whether you're going to pickle it so that it protects without hurting, or whether you're just going to pick off the important bits and just, and just give those. What this approach does is it, it, it works at the molecular level. So we look at the pathogen's DNA or RNA, and we find the sequence that corresponds to the important bits. Mm-hmm. We put it in a cell line that then produces just that protein. Right. Actually, it's been engineered a bit, so it, it sticks in the right shape. So actually, it's very similar to RNA. In that RNA, you put the genetic material into the body, and the cells make the protein. Yeah. All we're doing is making the protein protein outside ah, the body okay. before putting it in. So it's kind of, it's kind of doing what RNA does, but outside the body. Yeah. So very similar in that sense. Mm-hmm. And what those two approaches give you are three critical things. They give you speed. You can do it very fast. They give you absolute precision mm-hmm. down to a sort of molecular level. You know what you're making, and they give you flexibility. Mm-hmm. If mumps changes in 30 years' time, yeah. we can change the vaccine, just yeah. as people are doing with RNA for COVID. That's fascinating. Excellent. Um, and with this kind of vaccine, do you need those repeated doses that you need with the, the current form, or is it more of a, a kind of longer-lasting? Yeah, no, that's actually a great question. That's one of the beauties of this vaccine. The, the current vaccine is a live attenuated vaccine, and that protects by causing a mini disease. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that is once you have any antibodies, 
you can't cause that many disease. So live attenuated vaccines can't boost. They're always neutralized by the existing antibodies. Whereas a protein vaccine actually boosts even better if there are antibodies there because the antibodies bind to the antigen that interacts better with the immune cells and cause a better response. So actually the first indication would be a mumps booster um, to give to adolescents and adults um, to boost their mumps response so we don't get these outbreaks. Okay, and that's something that can be easily created, I assume, because you're taking the three and putting them into one so you can just take that one out and give it as a boost exactly yeah and we would do that first we'd start to develop yeah. that first exactly yeah. and those the nice thing is those components can be changed around. and in the future we can add in other components if we wish yeah. brilliant um i know you've touched on this a little bit in your uh, previous answers but um what would you say is the the one main benefit over other types of vaccine is there just one kind of silver bullet yeah, I, as i said the ability to boost yeah. It's critical. We need a booster and there isn't a booster. <laughs> yeah. Um, scalability, stability, yeah. um, and, and, and adaptability if we yeah. need to in the future. Nice yeah. package there. Um, so um again, you might have um touched on this as well, but just to kind of um go into a little bit more detail, what stage have you got to in the development? So what what are we looking at now and in the next kind of few months, say? So we've got what we call proof of concept data in non-human primates, mm-hmm. which is a very strong indicator of what's going to happen in, in humans. Mm-hmm. So we're now ready to um, lock down the production process. Mm-hmm. So we know we're making the same vaccine every time. Yeah. And then we'll go into the clinic and we'd like to, we're planning to go into the clinic next year. Excellent. The nice thing about taking this vaccine into the mm-hmm. clinic is that, um, as you know, the first in man studies are in healthy young adults. Mm-hmm. Well, healthy young adults happen to have already had two doses of MMR. Yeah. So we'll know immediately from that first study how well this vaccine works. So it'd actually be quite a quick development because yeah. of that. Brilliant. Excellent. Um, so um, I know that Mevox is UK-based, you mentioned. Yes. It, would that be your main starting point for rolling out into clinic? Are you going to uh, kind of focus on the UK and Europe? Are you wanting to, to get it into America as well? What's your What's your plan? Yeah, the big needs for mumps vaccine uh, are yet yeah, UK um, and the US uh, are, are two areas that have seen a lot of mumps outbreaks. Mm-hmm. Another area I haven't talked about um, is actually in Japan. The MMR vaccine was stopped in 1993, okay. so they only use measles rubella. So there's a, there's a yeah. there's a very significant need for a better mumps vaccine in Japan. So we're also talking to potential Japanese partners to do some studies there. Oh, that's interesting. Just out of interest, why did they stop using that element? Yeah. Was there a big controversy or was it just... One of the challenges wanted? with the mumps vaccine is um, finding the sweet spot um, between a vaccine that um, causes um, symptoms, mm-hmm. not dangerous symptoms, but there are vaccines that work really well also seem to cause headaches. Okay. Those headaches go away. But that's pretty scary for people to have those severe headaches. If they don't cause headaches, they don't work very well. Right. And nobody else able to be able to find that Goldilocks zone between the two. Yeah. Um, and in Japan, the homegrown mumps vaccine caused a lot of headaches. Right. Um, traditionally, the vaccine um, market and population in Japan have been very sensitive to any kind of safety issue. Right. And they just refused 
to have the vaccine. So the government were forced okay. to take it out of the schedule. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So do you think it would need a lot of kind of positive marketing to get a vaccine back in or do you think with your crystal ball do you think it would be quite quite easy yeah no well I think so I think it's a safety question Mm -hmm. we've seen similar things with hip vaccine and HPV vaccine in Japan that have also been removed because of worries Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so I think as long as we can show safety in a significant population then I think that ticks that box yeah yeah perfect I've noticed in the news, I think it was at the beginning of this year, about a kind of resurgence in measles cases in the UK. And obviously it had um, been dropping and been quite low, if not eradicated, for for quite a long time. Um, Do you have um, a view on, on why that might be the case? Is it kind of a vaccine hesitancy issue? Is it to do with the efficacy and the fact that um, the vaccine is is so old? I don't know if that's um, uh, that's a potential. Like, what's what's your kind of take on that? Measles is the most infectious virus we know in humans. It has a basic reproduction number of fifteen to seventeen. Right. Um, thanks to covid people you know no covid's maybe you know five to seven maybe nine yeah. mumps is the second most infectious <laughs> that right. we know um so what that means is that if your vaccination coverage drops below 95 percent for measles yeah. or 90 percent for mumps then you're going to get cases right um what's been happening over recent years partly through hesitancy is that we've been consistently dipping under that yeah. And unfortunately, during COVID as well, vaccination levels haven't been where they should yeah, be. Of course. Um, so there, there, there is what we call a susceptible population out there. There's a, there's a large enough popula- population out there that can catch these diseases. These diseases are unfortunately still circulating in significant numbers uh, in low income, income countries. Mm-hmm. Um, with the, the travel that goes on in the world these days, it, it's inevitable that that infections will come into the UK and those that the fire will be lit in the susceptible populations and we will see outbreaks. And I suspect we'll see more and more outbreaks. So um, we certainly see our vaccine as, as, as a potential to boost that, to fill some of that gaps as well as eventually uh, replacing the current MMR vaccine. So we think we can, we can contribute to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the, the main thing is to ensure that as many people as possible get vaccinated yeah absolutely and i know you mentioned about those kind of um uh lower income countries and how that's one of your benefits of this it can be rolled out and scaled up um a bit better there is there a is there an obvious way to achieve that it seems like it's a potentially uh easier to do in the uk and europe and the us but um is there a a plan of action do you have a time scale in which you want to to achieve that yeah i mean the, the first thing is to get to scale mm-hmm. of an affordable product and so we always have that in our mind as we develop things we're always asking ourselves at scale is this going to be um, something that low-income countries can afford yeah. um, and then as the vaccine progresses um, one then needs to start talking as early as possible to those who make 
decisions on those, whether that be the WHO, whether that be Gavi, whether that be yeah. UNICEF, whether that be the Gates Foundation, the people that contribute to that decision making. Yeah. And um, we're certainly talking to all those groups already. Brilliant. Excellent. Um, obviously, MMR is your focus with BVOX. Is there anything that you've got kind of in the pipeline or that you'd like to? I know you said about adding other potential um, uh, vaccines into that one. What what would your kind of dream trajectory be like, I guess? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's very uh, in vogue to talk about platforms, but it is a platform, and that that engineering expertise can be applied to a whole range of vaccines. Um, it's probably a bit early to talk about those specific targets. Yes, of course, um, we'd like to sort of <laughs> sail under the radar for a bit with those, but we're already working on two or three additional targets, which um, basically, yeah, engineer those different fusion proteins so that we can produce antibodies that we know will prevent different viruses from attaching to cells if they can't attach to cells then they can't cause disease excellent um that's great so um mmr has been in the news a lot recently obviously um gsk's uh, new vaccine got approved in the us recently what's your take on this renewed interest in mmr and how important do you think things like competition with the vaccines are in america and elsewhere so the um, the licensure of, of Priorix in, in the US is interesting. Prior to that, there was only one provider of MMR vaccine in the US, which was Merck. It, the GSK vaccine, however, is essentially the same vaccine as the Merck vaccine. Right. Um, and so that that is about supply. Uh-huh. And um, quite rightly, policymakers don't want a monopoly. They'd rather have a duopoly. So yeah. I think that, that's good and that's great. Um, in the rest of the world, there is a duopoly or triopoly. There are only three makers of MMR mm-hmm. in the world. Um, but I think it highlights, um, as we've seen, mumps is still around, measles is still around. There are 100,000 deaths from measles last year in the world. Um, so um, I think the renewed interest is, is what we talked about, really, is that here we are 50, 60 years after the original MMR, we can do better. Yeah. I think the vaccine space has been invigorated by COVID, mm-hmm. which is great. People understand vaccines. The man in the street yeah. or the man on the Clapham omnibus or the woman on the Clapham omnibus can talk about vaccines these days in a sense, which is fantastic. Um, so um, I, I hope and I think I believe we're, we're going to see a real resurgence in interest in vaccines yeah. and better vaccines, improved vaccines. Brilliant. That's great. Um, and looking at the vaccine landscape from a wider perspective where do you think we'll see that leading so obviously you mentioned covid um kind of sped things up it made people think about vaccines in a different way what what's the next step on from that do you think yeah i think we've there's been hiv has brought about huge investment in immunology mm-hmm. covid has brought about huge investment in vaccines And I think we're moving into um, an age of what I would call molecular vaccines, where we understand to a molecular level how the pathogen gets into the body, therefore how to stop it and what to make to stop it. We've also understanding immunology a lot better, not completely, but a lot better. And so I think bringing those together um, will allow a whole new generation of vaccines, some of which will be RNA vaccines. I think many of which will be recombinant protein vaccines. Mm -hmm. I said that 
they're very similar in many ways yeah excellent that's great um and i know that mevox isn't your only um role at the minute so do you want to just kind of touch on your your other roles and your other kind of passion projects that you're working on at the minute yeah i'm also executive chair of a self-amplifying rna company um in cambridge which uh called vax equity um which is a close partnership with with astrazeneca um and so that's that's still very much in in the early stage um i think they're both in the uk i think my other passion is um in my 25 years in vaccines i've had to be in france or the us mm-hmm. it's great to see vaccines um coming back to life in the uk and europe and and i would love to do and i'm trying to do whatever i can to to support that encourage that so anybody who's who's um looking to develop vaccine capability capacity in the uk i'm in there and trying to help as much as i can Brilliant. That's great. I actually saw a press release this morning that said that Moderna has got investment to build a new kind of innovation. I don't know if innovation lab is the right way of wording it, but um, that looked like a really interesting development, like lots of good things can come from that. Absolutely. It's fantastic. That's great. It's to have that critical mass. It's very interesting. If you you look at countries that make aeroplanes and helicopters, and countries that make vaccines, they almost completely overlap on each other. It's one of those things where you need a critical mass of, of scientific expertise, yeah. of access to populations, of, of all sorts of things, of investors um, to come together to make it possible. Yeah. Um, and I, it's great to see that the UK is still able to do that. Perfect. Um, Well, that brings us to the end. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I have learned a lot um, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So thank you. Thank you, Helen. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much. Absolutely fascinating insights from Mike there. I particularly liked his comments on the MMR vaccine in Japan and the work Mevox is doing to offer a much needed alternative to the version that was withdrawn there. I agree. That was really interesting. And the fact that this MMR vaccine has the potential to benefit so many other people across the world in low and middle income countries as well is just brilliant. Such an exciting development with life changing and life saving opportunities worldwide. We'll be certain to follow Mevox's progress closely over the coming months, I'm sure. And with that, we've reached the end of the episode and the end of the season. Thank you so much to Mike for joining us for the finale, to the Gold team for all their hard work in putting these episodes together each week, to you, our listeners, for tuning in. And thank you, Mark, for being such a great co-host. We've had a blast. Oh, thank you, Helena. The check is in the post. But um, (laughs) seriously, thank you to you for all of your work on the podcast over the past few months. And thank you to everyone for listening. So don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. It helps like-minded people like yourselves to find the podcast in future. It really does help. And by subscribing, you'll be the first to hear when we're back with season three later in the year too. And don't forget to catch up with all things gold on the website at www.emg-gold.com. Indeed. Have a great summer and we'll see you in September. Bye for now.